Thank you all for coming and welcome. I would like to introduce our speaker for today, uh, Dr. Reza Zia Ebrahimi. He is a lecturer in history at King's College London. He was trained at the University of Geneva, the London School of Economics, and right here at St. Anthony's College, where he read his DPhil under Professor Homa Khatuzian. He has worked on the emergence of ethnic nationalism and ideas of race in modern Iran, and now he is currently working on a completely new project, which offers to analyze commonalities between anti-Semitism and Islamophobia, with a focus on philology and conspiracy theories. So, without further ado, please join me in welcoming Dr. Zia Ebrahimi. Good afternoon, uh, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you very much for coming to this talk. Uh, I am very, very pleased to be back at St. Anthony's after so many years. The place looks nothing like it used to be. In my days, we used to refer to it as the car park, and now it looks like Zaha Hadid. So I suppose thanks must go to Nemir Kirdar and the late Zaha Hadid for giving a facelift to the college. I would like to first thank Samira for uh, initiating this event and inviting me, and also extend my thanks to the college, but most importantly to Homa Katuzian, under whose uh, supervision I completed this project a few years ago here at uh, St. Anthony's. Thank you very much, Homa, for your mentorship and support over the years. My talk today is about a certain form of Iranian nationalism, which some of you might recognize from uh, these images here. A certain number of, I would say, myths and ideas that are extremely common, and I'm sure that those of you who have been to Iran or have met Iranians abroad must have come across some of the, these ideas. One of them being the idea that Iran means the land of Aryans, so this is predicated on the, the opposition between the Aryan race and uh, Semitic race, which is a very lively identity discourse in Iran, although that is not the case in Europe anymore, certainly since the discovery of Germany's death camps in 1945. The uh, second idea that is part of this, uh, this group of myths that I'm referring to is uh, a certain um, infatuation with Iran's pre-Islamic past, and particularly with some sites such as Persepolis, obviously, and some historical figures, mostly Cyrus the Great, who is perceived as the founder of uh, the Persian Empire, which uh, in fact is the Achaemenid Empire, given that I don't know personally of any state that ever called itself the Persian Empire. So this past is uh, perceived as the golden age of Iran and somehow an age that encapsulates the essence of Iranianness. That age came to an end as a result of what is referred to as the Arab invasion, on which, to which I will come back in greater detail in a short bit. And there is a, I dare say, a very profound hostility towards Arabs as a people, and Arabic as a language, and Islam as a religion. These ideas do not only manifest themselves discursively or in written, but they are also visually very present. I mean, one is absolutely overwhelmed by the omnipresence of just a handful of motifs and ornamental forms taken from Persepolis, chiefly 
the Faravah, who is a, which is, which you can see in that tattoo here and also on the, on the, on the gold chain. It's a, a Zoroastrian deity. There are also um, other ornamental features, such as the, uh, the, the columns surmounted by the bulls, and so on and so forth. And they are pretty much ubiquitous. I mean, uh, I think about 85% of the tattoos I've seen on the bodies of Iranians are this ones, but always the same. And that gold chain is also, you know, just it takes a very short walk on the streets of Tehran or Los Angeles to uh, see uh, many of these. And I have to admit that when I was 15 years uh, of age, I had the exact same chain. Um, and I don't count the number of uh, Iranian restaurants and businesses across the world that are called Persepolis and Cyrus and so on and so forth. One gets the impression that there has never been any other motive invented on the Iranian plateau that... No great man other than Cyrus the Great or the Riot ever walked on the Iranian plateau. I would be lying if I said that I always wanted to conduct this research. I didn't. I think like many Iranians of my social background, having grown up in the capital in the 80s, I grew up in an environment that absolutely upheld these uh, myths that I ended up researching. Not particularly my parents are very apolitical, but certainly the extended uh, social environment in which I grew up. So what brought me to write this book, sorry for the self-promotion, the vagaries of my personal life brought me to a point where I took a healthy distance with these myths and came to see the, the sheer unanimity surrounding these myths as uh, something begging for an explanation. And I couldn't find any explanation in the historiography at the time. So I, try, I, I decided to trace the origins, the origins of these ideas. And the core argument of my book is that these ideas are part of a very coherent uh, ideology, nationalist ideology, that I refer to as dislocative nationalism. So what is dislocative nationalism? So here... I don't use the concept of dislocation as scholars of uh, migration would, for instance. So I'm not talking about geographic dislocation as experienced by uh, migrants or refugees. It's an operation that takes place in the realm of the imagination, whereby Iran is dislodged from its reality as a land that finds itself in the Middle East, and the majority of who, whose population profess uh, Islam. I think the very basic premise that Iran and Islam have something to do with each other is something that can be accepted, and as a result, this dislocation uh, can be problematized and researched. I hope that my concept of dislocation can be useful in nationalism studies and perhaps be applied to other cases. I have thought of a few cases where it could be applied, but always reach the uh, conclusion that the Iranian form of dislocative nationalism is the most complete, uh, perhaps, uh, or an archetype, perhaps. I obviously argue that it's a modern ideology that emerges very late in the uh, 19th century and is not popular uh, before the 20th century. And in terms of the origins of these ideas, I think the templates that were used to come up with some of these ideas are not to be found in local texts or experiences or practices, but mostly in or European orientalist scholarship. 
on Iran and uh, European racial theories. I am not claiming that these ideas were wholesale adopted as they were. I think someone else made that claim in the 90s. However, I think that a number of key intellectuals selected some ideas, left some other ideas out, and engineered them into, into dislocative nationalism and in a form that could be understood by the masses of, the, of, of Iranians and uh, mobilize them. Finally, I argue that dislocative nationalism uh, becomes part and parcel of the official ideology of the Pahlavi state from 1925 <laughs> to 1979, incorporated with other, other forms of uh, ideology, I mean, uh, mainly westernization as a form of modernization, etc. But the uh, identity discourse is largely indebted to dislocative nationalism, and these ideas were hammered into the brains of generations of Iranians through mass schooling, making the, its influence uh, uh, very durable, uh, I dare say. I embarked on a journey to the sources of dislocative nationalism, and this journey took me to the early Qajar period, the early 19th century. So if we had a time capsule and went back to this period, we would walk out of that time capsule and perhaps notice a few things. The first thing is that all that imagery that I showed you earlier, the tattoos and the gold chains, are absolutely absent from the visual arts of the early Qajar period and the earlier Safavid period as well, with very few exceptions. The second remark is that there is no nation of Iran in this period in the modern sense uh, of the term. In fact, there is no modern state at the time. The Qajar state is a, a very loose state and it doesn't have any nationwide institution that can help the Qajars control their territory. There is no Iranian citizenship and there is no Iranian citizenry. There is not even a national history of Iran. In other terms, in 1800, you do not have a history book that claims to retrace the history of this state within its current borders from its origins to today. This will have to wait until 1815, and it's in fact a British colonial agent called John Malcolm who will write the first national history of Iran called A History of Persia. Of course, the term Iran exists, but its meaning is uh, far more fluid. It's a very broad geo-cultural idea that is very ancient, and it's also sometimes the official name of this Qajar state. The official name is the guarded domains, the Mamaleke Mahruseh. Very often it's the guarded domains of the Qajars, and occasionally it is also the guarded domains of Iran. So clearly the term is there, the idea is there, but there is a degree of fluidity. It hasn't been fixed by a, national, a nationalist ideology. It hasn't been fixed in the curriculum of a mass schooling system. The common man's identity, we don't know. The common man is illiterate in this period. Some estimate put the uh, percentage of illiteracy in the Raja period anywhere between 90 and 95%. So they haven't left any uh, sources behind that would allow us to uh, speculate about their identity. But we can, we can imagine that their identities were either localized or religious, if we are to believe some of the European travelogues that discuss the matter superficially but in an, in an interesting way. People would probably say, I am from Shiraz, like 
Hafez does, or I'm a Shiite Muslim, or I'm a Nakhshabandi Sufi, or I'm a Jew. You can have you can have forms of belonging that are regional. I am from Khorasan, uh, but we have very few cases of anyone calling himself Iranian in this early period of the 19th uh, century. How about the elite? Well, the elite is different and is interesting. They derive their identity and their pride from three things. First is Persian high culture, clearly. So the literature, the poetry, and the mysticism uh, that has been expressed in the Persian language, over which you must have a very good command if you are to get anywhere in the uh, system of the Raja court. Secondly, Islam is very important to their identity. I mean, the Rajars, as is well known from the uh, visual arts that they have left behind, didn't mind a glass of wine, didn't mind to smoke opium occasionally, and they had a, an inclination for naked women. However, Islam is at the center of their sense of pride uh, when it comes to encounters with foreign legations, for instance. There is something perhaps counterintuitive as well about their identity. The Rajars in the early 19th century derive a great deal of pride from their descent from one of the generals of Genghis Khan, the Mongol invader of the 13th century, something that is absolutely inconceivable later in the 19th century. And what is interesting is how we go from a ruling dynasty that trumpets their belonging to a Mongol dynasty to becoming Iranianized, becoming indigenized. More importantly, in this period, you have no written source in either prose or verse that talks about the Aryan race or that refers to the advent of Islam as an Arab invasion. So all of this brings us to the conclusion that dislocative nationalism is modern, that Iranian identity is modern, perhaps engineered, constructed, invented, which is not a great discovery, by the way. I, think, uh, I, don't, I don't claim that it is a great discovery. I think all scholars of nationalism, of a modernist persuasion, which is about 90% of them, would tell you that nations have been constructed sometimes in the modern age, generally in the 19th century. And even ethno-symbolists would admit that whatever ethnic or dynastic realm or community of history existed prior to the modern era has been significantly re-engineered, sometimes out of recognition, by ideologues to become a modern uh, nation. But interestingly, when I was uh, thinking about uh, all of this, nobody really talked about you know, the modernity of Iranian identity. Nobody asked, in my view, as I was growing up, nobody asked the real questions about the why and who and how and for what purpose. In fact, the historiography of Iran until very late in the 20th century, the historiography produced in Iran itself, is, uh, I mean, simply peddles the same cliched myths of the 2,500 years old land of Aryans founded by Cyrus the Great, then destroyed by Arabs and Islam, and, and so on and so forth. So uh, a lot of our historiography produced in the 20th century, unfortunately, is, is little more than uh, nationalist propaganda. And it's only in the 1990s that you start to have a monograph that approaches the question of your own identity uh, critically. So what happened after this period? Very traumatic encounter with Europe happens, which comes in the form of two wars with Russia. 
Russia, which is at the time advancing southwards very aggressively. And I think it's important to bear in mind that the uh, Iranian Qajar elite despise Russians. Rudy Mati has done a very interesting work on perceptions, pre-modern perceptions of Russians in the Iranian courts. And Russians are considered boorish and, you know, bibulous and subhuman in some texts, uncouth, etc. Therefore, defeats against Russians become all the more painful, I think, to digest for the elites. The same Russians, you know, are now appearing on the frontiers of the Qajar state with a modern standing army, with a central command, very effective military machine, and that seems impregnable almost. And they defeat the tribal forces of the Rajar state and humiliate them. And as a result of that, Russia will annex large chunks of land uh, in what uh, we would call today Transcaucasia. So, for instance, when you think about Georgia or Armenia, these are places that you immediately associate with, with Russia because they were Soviet republics and prior to that, they were part of the Russian Empire. Well, it, it starts in this period when these, these uh, kingdoms were, and principalities were in fact vassals of the Rajar state and would be annexed by the Russians during these two wars. These defeats will shock the very self-content elite of the Rajar state who believe that, you know, thanks to Persian high culture, they were the pinnacle of uh, human civilization and that the state... The Rajar state was somehow sanctified uh, in their minds. So to illustrate that, I'm going to quote from Abbas Mirza, who was at the time the heir apparent and also field marshal, who uh, told the French diplomat in 1805, what is the power that gives Europe so great a superiority over us? What is the cause of your progress and and of our constant weakness? You know the art of governing, the art of conquering, the art of putting into action all human faculties, whereas we seem condemned to vegetate in a shameful ignorance. I have no doubt that the French diplomat has exaggerated Abbas Mirza's words for purposes of self-aggrandizement. But I think what transpires from this quotation is the incapacity of Abbas Mirza and the Rajar elite at large to come to terms with these defeats. There is nothing in Iranian traditional knowledge that can make sense of the reasons why a modern standing army can defeat a tribal force. Nothing, in other terms, can make sense of European modernity. This European modernity, which is now a very serious threat to the Rajar state, that encroaches on the Rajar state. Uh, This is a period where the sense of superiority of the elite is crushed, and it will lead to a very long and painful process of self-questioning. So the Rajar elite will be dragged out of their torpor, if you will, and forced to make sense of why is Europe ahead of us militarily at first. And this uh, is the event that is considered the event that leads to the birth of the Iranian modernist movement. The modernists are precisely thinkers and intellectuals from the elite who will spend most of the 19th century trying to understand European modernity and trying to understand how Iran can address its shortcomings and close the gap in order to protect itself and protect its territory primarily against European imperialism. These individuals, over time, will acquire a first-hand 
experience of Europe, because starting in 1811, a large number of the progenies of the Raja elites will actually go to Europe or to Russia or to the Ottoman Empire or British India to study and work and acquire some sort of experience of European modernity and come back and try to devise programs of reform. They would come back and uh, they would uh, sit in uh, reformist circles and discuss representative government and economic advancement and so on and so forth. What is really important to bear in mind about these people, and one example, uh, one prominent example here is the chap on the right, who is uh, Malcolm Khan, probably the most prominent, the most influential, the most important modernist thinker later in the 19th century. What is important is that they are pragmatic. Now, I, I emphasize that because I'm going to contrast that with nationalism. These are people who are interested in reforming the state. So they, have, they try to come up with a program of reform of the state, a blueprint uh, for the future, if you will. And there are a few achievements in this period. Perhaps the greatest achievement is the establishment of the Darul Funun uh, here in the middle, which is uh, Iran's first institution of higher education and which trained generations of Iranian artists, statesmen, and uh, literateurs and reformers. And it's also the, uh, the uh, ancestor of Tehran University, which I think is uh, the largest university in the Middle East uh, today. However, overall, it's fair to say that modernism fails to bring about any significant change in this period. The state remains arbitrary. There are no checks over the prerogatives of the king. European encroachment... Uh, continue unabated, and in fact, Iran continues to be defeated on the battlegrounds, uh, notably in 1857, when British forces repel the, for the Rajar uh, tribal forces at Herat. So this is the moment when some intellectuals break away from modernism. There are two characters that I focus on in my work, and the first one is this guy, Mirza Fatali Akhunzadeh, also known as Akhundov in Soviet and Russian parlance. He's, uh, he was born in what is today the Republic of Azerbaijan, which would be annexed during the wars with Russia. And so these people come to the conclusion that these reforms are useless, we're not getting anywhere. And they turn to nationalism. Akhunzadeh is really the first one to do that. I consider him as a father, a founding father, of dislocative nationalism, which is perhaps a bit counterintuitive because, as uh, Homer Katuzian likes to highlight, he was a Turkish-speaking subject of the Tsar, and in f he actually went to Iran on two occasions only uh, in his entire life. But he considered himself as an Iranian. He, and you can see him uh, here in full Russian military outfit. So he, he was, for 34 years, the translator of the Russian viceroy in Tbilisi. So he spent his entire life serving the Russian state. And perhaps his uh, situation in Tbilisi was an advantage in some ways because he was sheltered from the censorship of the Qajar state or the attacks of the ulama at the time, unlike some other thinkers who were uh, uh, still living in Iran. In the 1860s, Akhunzadeh comes up with the first systematization or compilation of dislocative nationalist ideas. You find in his treatises very clearly the same ideas that you will find later on. This infatuation with pre-Islamic Iran, this idea that 
the Arab invasion is a rupture in Iranian history, and the scapegoating of Arabs and Islam along this racial Aryan versus Semite lines. And an attempt to, as Tabakoli Tari would say, dissociate Iran from Islam. Now, contrasting this with modernism, what I really want you to pick up on is that there is no program of state reform here at all. We are talking about a, a narrative, a historicist narrative of a glorious past and the reasons for decadence. But there is nowhere in Akhundzadeh's writing a blueprint to reform the state. That's why I refer to dislocative nationalism in comparison with uh, modernism as discursive. It's a discursive and historicist ideology. And in fact, it doesn't really catch on at the beginning. And Akhundzadeh might have sunk into oblivion if it wasn't for the second guy, Mirza Awakhane Kermani. He's um, a very unusual character in many ways. He flirts with Babism uh, early in his uh, career, then with Islamic modernism. He's uh, one of the acolytes of Jamal al-Din al-Afghani. And then he becomes an atheist, and finally, towards the end of his life, a dislocative nationalism. And his, uh, his writing is characterized by this very angry prose, which will earn him a lot of enemies, reason why he, why he would be beheaded by agents of the crown. Uh, in 1896. Intellectually, he is a disciple of Akhunzadeh. He has completely internalized the ideas of Akhunzadeh, uh, the ideas that Akhunzadeh expressed 30 years earlier in the 1860s. And he will endeavor to consolidate and propagate Akhunzadeh's ideas with his own writings when he was exiled in Istanbul in the 1890s. Ideologically, the importance of Kermani is his far superior awareness of European racial theories. Akhunzadeh does differentiate Iranians and Arabs, but he never uses the terminology. With Kermani, you start to read for the first time the Aryan race, a far better awareness of also social Darwinian theories. The first occurrence of the term the Aryan race that I have found is in Kermani's work. And in fact, it's a transliteration of French. And the original French is uh, written in Latin characters uh, between, between brackets, showing you know, clearly the uh, origins of the ideas and the templates that he have used. So now this is the end of the uh, historical background. And I'd like now to move to the intellectual history bit where, where I can tell you more about the actual ideas. So the ideas of dislocative nationalism, as I mentioned earlier, there is this infatuation with pre-Islamic Iran, which I refer to as Golden Age, Archaism. In Akhunzadeh and Kermani's writing, pre-Islamic Iran is a utopian paradise, if you will, devoid of poverty, devoid of corruption, and devoid of injustice. And the kings are benevolent and free of any vice. And this pre-Islamic past is, of course, contrasted with contemporary Iran, which is a land of despotism and cruelty and superstitious beliefs. I have provided you here with an image which is, which is a present-day image, which I think, again, encapsulates this idea very much. So this is a painter which did a lot of uh, similar, very corny paintings uh, in the 1990s. They would come as you know, calendars, and you would see them in Iranian restaurants. So you have the context seems to be the context of a paradise. You, know, you have all these flowers and, and, and things. It almost looks like the, uh, like the typical Iranian carpets, which is supposed to be you know, an epiphany of paradise. 
And of course the golden chain that you saw around that hairy guy's neck uh, a few slides ago. And um, the woman is unveiled. I think there, you, you find this idea among many dislocative nationalists that the problem of treatment of women in Iran it can be entirely attributed to Islam uh, and Arabs. And that if you take Islam out of the equation, then you have perfect, full equality. And there is this assumption uh, about the pre-Islamic past, and I think this is symbolized in the fact that this woman is unveiled, uh, which of course runs completely in the face of uh, the facts of history. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, in the Sasanian uh, period, women fetched a price and uh, belonged to their next of kin, and of course women of the upper classes were veiled. And I think that this is information that could have been available uh, to Ahunzadeh and Kermani had they looked into Zoroastrian texts with uh, uh, more attention. This Golden Age archaism is something that you do not find in any text prior to Ahunzadeh. Dislocative nationalists would typically argue that you find forms of this Golden Age archaism in the Shahnameh, the uh, uh, Book of Kings, which is Iran's uh, national epic poem. I think there's very little to support that claim. I'm happy to come back to it uh, later. Particularly, I don't think that there's ever been in the Shahnameh literature a claim that this period was better than the following period. I think the Shahnameh is simply a compilation of myth histories from the pre-Islamic period. Most historians writing in Persian or Arabic uh, throughout the Islamic period generally have deemed the advent of Islam to Iran as one of the greatest miracles, uh, one of the greatest divine miracles. I think the origins of this representation of the pre-Islamic past is to be found in Orientalist scholarship. And I'd like to highlight uh, two aspects of Orientalist scholarship, two elements. One is, of course, a profound distaste for Islam, which I think is, is pretty omnipresent in 19th century uh, oriented scholarship, with some exception, of course, Ignaz Goldziher, etc., that seemed to confirm the rule rather than anything else. And from the 18th century onwards, as a result of this distaste for Islam, you start to have some form of inclination for Zoroastrianism, which is something that you find in Montesquieu, for instance, or in Diderot, or in, or in Voltaire. And this inclination for Zoroastrianism is not based on a knowledge of Zoroastrianism, but it's simply based on the assumption that something that was there before Islam and that Islam crushed must be good. And as a matter of fact, these uh, thinkers were very critical of Anquetil du Perron, who translated the Avesta in French in the 1760s because the actual Zoroastrian text didn't fit into their, the, their imagination of Zoroastrianism. So I think there's a little bit of that. And then there is what I call humanist classicism. A lot of Orientalists who worked on, the, uh, on Iran, for instance, came to their field from a classicist background. So from, they were Latinists initially, uh, very, a lot of them, or worked on ancient Greece. And they had completely internalized Edward Gibbon's vision of the fall of the Roman Empire. Antiquity is an age of you know, great scientific advancement, and bam, Christianity comes, and the Dark Ages follow. Something that Gibbon refers to as the triumph of barbarism and religion. So my sense is that the Orientalists took that reading of the history of Europe and Christianity and simply applied it to 
Iran. But it doesn't really work. All the uh, great discoveries of, the, of this part of the world that were passed down are discoveries that took place in the Islamic period. All the great thinkers are from the Islamic period. I mean, it's, I can only name three of them as an example. Khorazmi, from, uh, to whom we owe the terms algebra and algorithm, was uh, an Islamic scholar. So was Razi, who is deemed the greatest clinician of all times, and of course Avicenna, whose canon of medicine was studied in Europe well into the 17th century. These are now pre-Islamic thinkers, and Islam did not inhibit their scientific endeavors. Uh, let's move on to the second idea, the second tenet of dislocative nationalism, which uh, in fact is, uh, derives from the first, so, you know, this glorious period. So, you know, what happened? Why did it come to an end? Well, the, the answer is very simple. The Arabs came. That's why it came to an end. And I have picked here an image that I found online. I think it's a present-day image. And I picked it because, again, it really encapsulates the ideas of uh, dislocative nationalism. You have in the background the Palace of Kasra, which was the seat of the Sasanian Empire, the last empire before Islam which is in fire. It's, it's uh, located in Tessifon. You can uh, visit the uh, ruins in Iraq. And you have a horde of seemingly savage and bloodthirsty Arab males who are brown. And you have in the middle, about to be raped, a white woman that represents Iran. So the vulnerability of Iran is here feminized. And what is going to ensue is Islamic Iran. Islamic Iran is born out of arson and rape. The body of Iran, of Mother Iran, has been penetrated by these uh, brown aliens in the same way as the territory was penetrated, the language was penetrated, the culture was penetrated, and so on and so forth. So the idea of rupture is absolutely, oops, sorry, absolutely central here. The Arab invasion is really the key moment, the teleological moment in dislocative nationalism. It makes sense of anything that precedes and follows it. And it is eminently a cultural event. The Arabs did not come to expand their tax base, as most empires in the history of mankind have done. It's about culture. It's, it's because they are hostile against the separate identity of Iranians, primarily their language, they have come to force us to use Arabic loanwords. They have come to force Islam down our, down our throats uh, at the point of the sword. And this is why this event is referred to as the Arab invasion. It is ethnicized. It's entirely ethnicized, and the Arab and the Iranian are completely reified in this uh, reading of Iranian history. And as a result of that, dislocative nationalist literature is not very kind, uh, obviously, to Arabs. I'd like to give you an example, forgive me for the words I'm going to use, I'm just quoting from Kermani, who says of Arabs that they are, quote, naked, bare-ass, savage, hungry vagabonds. I spit on them, naked bandits, homeless rat-eaters, vilest humans, <coughs> most vicious beasts, camel-riding thieves, Black and yellow scrawny lot. Don't ask me what that means. Animal-like and even worse than animals. And he goes on. I mean, he goes on over dozens of pages like this. In the dislocative nationalist imagination, Arabs become the convenient scapegoats 
for all of Iran's shortcomings and its decline in the 19th century and, of course, in the 20th century. Backwardness and despotism are explained by an all-encompassing reference to Islam and Arabs, something, again, that is absent from uh, previous literature. There's one um, aspect of this that I want to emphasize here, which is the idea of racial miscegenation. Western racial thought looks with horror in this period at cases of racial miscegenation or racial mixing. Reason why uh, interracial marriages were banned, even in, in some American states until 1967, that includes Florida. The idea there, perhaps best expressed by Arthur de Gobineau, is that a race, only a pure race, can produce a great civilization. Once you have mixing between races, there is degeneration. And I think that the reason why uh, this event occupies such an important place in the dislocative nationalist imaginary is because it has internalized this idea that this is a case of racial mixing. This is a case of the Aryan race being contaminated with what used to be called uh, Semitic filth. And, I th- and this is absolutely central to the only program of reform that dislocative nationalists have come up with, which is the elimination of things that they have arbitrarily defined as the legacy of Arabs. So chiefly, chiefly Islam, but also Arabic loanwords. There, is a, there has been a consistent effort throughout the 20th century to purify, it's a case of, you can call it, cultural eugenics or purification. A consistent attempt to eliminate foreign words, not only Arabic to be fair, but Arabic, chiefly Arabic, which is, in my view, something that really threatens the continuity of the Persian language. And I think one of, one of the things uh, that is great about the Persian language is that we can read poetry that is a thousand years old. Well, once 40% of the language's uh, vocabulary will have been changed with new coined terms, I, I fear that my son and my grandchildren will not be able to fare dosi, uh, ironically. Just to illustrate this policy of uh, cultural eugenics, I'd like to quote from a chap called Siasi, uh, who was an important Pahlavi, early Pahlavi statesman, who was a, a, a rector of uh, Tehran's university for a very long time. And he wrote a PhD thesis at the University of uh, Sorbonne in the 1920s about modernizing Iran. And the concluding sentence of his modernization program for Iran is the following. In order to modernize Iran, we must clear up the Persian soul from this impurity and allow it to shine from the sparkle peculiar to the Aryan genius. End of quotation. You also have... Second uh, example, there is this uh, publication in the 1940s called The Epistle of Ancient Iran, Name Iran Bastan. It's a monarchist pro-Nazi publication which was hugely popular in the 1940s. And it's, again, it's program of modernization for Iran as expressed on every page of this newspaper for the seven years it was published is constant admonitions to eliminate, purify the language from Arabic loanwords. I've already touched upon Arianism so far. I think I, I might skip the, uh, most of this bit. I'm happy to come back to it in the uh, Q&A. But essentially, to, uh, to summarize, the Aryan race theory emerges after the discovery that European and Iranian and Indian languages 
are part of the same family of languages referred to as the Indo-European languages. Early in the 19th century, this linguistic theory is uh, transformed by racial thinkers. So uh, uh, linguistic similarity is reinterpreted as uh, racial kinship by a number of thinkers, uh, including Friedrich Schlegel, who was here at Oxford, and, uh, and others. Iranians become part of the Aryan race, although I have to say that in the European texts, Iranians are never considered as full-fledged members of the Aryan race. They are sort of a degenerate, debased version at best, if you read Gobineau or Ernesto Renaud, for instance. However, the idea was taken up by dislocative nationalists, and it's really what allows, again, in the realm of the imagination, that operation of dislocation. It's only by portraying Iranians as related to Europeans and fundamentally, racially, not only different but opposed to their immediate neighbors that are Semitic or Turkish, etc., that you can complete this operation of dislocation. Just a few words on, on this. The problem with uh, Akhunzada and Kermani is that uh, they don't have a bibliography <laughs> and they don't footnote, uh, unfortunately. So it, it, it's not uh, straightforward to find out where they uh, found some of the ideas that you find on, in their pages. But I, I did some research and I came up with this pantheon uh, of Orientalists and racial thinkers that I think uh, played a, gr- a role of great incidence in uh, some of the ideas they use. And I think that the most importantly, mo- the most important of them all is the one in the middle, Arthur de Gobineau. And the reason being that Arthur de Gobineau, very influential racial thinker, was also an Orientalist, was uh, a great traveler, very interested in Iran, traveled in Iran, produced two travelogues on Iran that I am uh, practically certain were read uh, in great detail by Akhunzadeh and Kermani. And uh, he served for about three years as the French ambassador to uh, the Raja court as well. Not much work has been done exactly on his work on Iran, uh, so uh, you're considering a PhD. The Constitutional Revolution of 1906-1911. This event, you could say, is the pinnacle of modernist thought. The thought I was talking earlier about, that reform of the state. By this time, modernists have decided that what Iran needs is law and a constitution and uh, limits on the prerogatives of the king. The belief being that once we have that, we will have closed the gap with Europe and overnight Iran will become a very good place. I think it's very important to emphasize that the ideas of dislocative nationalism played absolutely no role in the constitutional revolution. And I mention it because claims are made uh, by the, uh, uh, I would say, dislocative historians of Iran that it's Ahunzadeh and Kermani that brought the ideas of the Enlightenment and Voltaire to Iran. That's why we had a, a, a constitutional revolution, which is a form of modernization theory. At the same time, uh, I think it's absolute, which is absolutely impossible to support. Uh, I don't know of any revolutionary who ever claimed that the problem of Iran is Islam. In fact, very often the slogans were, were Islamic in nature. I don't know of uh, any revolutionary who has claimed that the problem of Iran is the Arabs because you know, violence would have been committed against Arab speakers and there is absolutely no evidence uh, of that. I think in this period, dislocative nationalism is barely surviving under the skin of the intelligentsia. And it's only in the aftermath of the revolution, once the revolution fails in many ways, I mean the minds of many people, in bringing about a better society, and that the country comes very close to implosion 
as a result of the unleashing of these uh, centrifugal forces in the peripheries, it is only then that some intellectuals turn towards dislocative nationalism. So the way you could look at it is a transition from civic nationalism to ethnic nationalism. I don't know if you're familiar with these, this uh, comparison that you find in nationalism theory. Civic nationalism is a nationalism that is open and which is embodied in the institutions of the state. You, know, you are part of the nation if you have paid allegiance to the laws of the country, the constitution, and you know, regardless of what language you speak. So you know, the, the model is the French Republic, the model is the United States, a civic nation. Ethnic nation, on the other hand, is a closed community. Think of um, Serbia, Germany until a few decades ago. These are the models. Ethnic nationalism predicated on culture, language, ethnicity, background, sometimes descent, sometimes race, etc. And I think that in this period there is a transition from a civic form of nationalism to an ethnic form of nationalism, which is very interesting, as, uh, very understudied, and perhaps reminds one of the history of the Weimar Republic, where there is a similar turn to ethnic nationalism in the, the interwar period. What happens to dislocative nationalism once it becomes popular? Well, it becomes part and parcel as I mentioned earlier, of the uh, ideologies S of the Pahlavi period. Of course, uh, there is more than dislocative nationalism. I don't think you can rule with only dislocative nationalism. But when it comes to the identity of the population that the Pahlavi state is, is willing to instill into the, uh, the people, dislocative nationalist ideas were very influential. I think only a study of dislocative nationalism can make sense of a number of early Pahlavi policies. For instance, the ban on the external manifestations of Shiite Islam. So for a brief period of a few years, everything that you associate with Shiite Islam, you know, the processions, the, the chest beating, the, the Tazie passion play, and the commemorations of the uh, martyrdom of Imam Hussein and so on and so forth, were simply banned and privatized. Interesting reverse parallel with today. I think only a study of dislocative nationalism can fully make sense of the endeavor of the Pahlavi state to forcibly unveil uh, women in 1936. Women were forcibly unveiled in 1936. If you showed up with a veil on on the streets of uh, Iran between 1936 and 1941, uh, the authorities were allowed to forcibly tear apart your veil and probably hurl insults at you and maybe give you a good beating in the process. It's a hugely traumatizing event. I think only dislocative nationalism can fully make sense of the sartorial regulations of the early Pahlavi state. So the early Pahlavi state forced the population to dress in a certain way. Parallels with Turkey, of course, there's the influence of Kemalism. But you can see on this picture here, males that, have, that are wearing European suits, European ties, and the Pahlavi hat, which was mandatory until the king changed his mind and imposed another hat, inspired by the French military uh, kepi. So as I said, there, is ide there are ideas of westernization and Kemalism, but there's also the idea that we are not imitating foreigners. We are not emulating anyone. But by going to Europe, we're going back to our own roots. We are uprooting sartorial uh, practices that are not ours, that were imposed on, on, on us by Arabs. And I think Hushang Shahabi in his work 
on unveiling and sartorial regulation touches upon that. There are very interesting quotations where these points are made. The, the French KP is actually identical to the hat that Sasanian soldiers used to wear, I mean, and, and so on and so forth. Uh, some of the main propagators of locative nations outside the state in the 20th century. Uh, it includes two uh, very important literateurs, Hedayat, uh, who is uh, uh, arguably the greatest uh, novelist of modern Iran. Zalin Kub, who is, I would, I would say, pseudo-historian, just because uh, he, well, not only he peddled dislocative nationalist myths in his work, but he was not, also not trained as a historian. He was trained uh, in literature. And uh, lastly, Shajaeddin Shafa, who was, who was actually part of the state, he was a propagandist who worked closely with uh, the late Muhammad Reza Shah. In the Muhammad Reza Shah period, I think many dislocative nationalist ideas are toned down compared to his uh, father. So women can wear a veil again. And uh, Muhammad Reza Shah has uh, some very interesting religious ideas, in fact. He goes on pilgrimage to Mecca, to Shabdul Azim, to Mashhad, uh, and claims that he's protected by Shiite figures and saints. However, it's important to emphasize that Islam has absolutely no place in the identity of the Pahlavi state or the identity that it is attempting to instill into the population through textbooks and propaganda and uh, so on and so forth. Today, post-79, dislocative nationalism turns in the late 80s into the most conventional form of secular opposition to the Islamic Republic, but now the lines are a lot more blurred than they used to be. I think uh, that many Iranian dignitaries today do not hesitate to tap into dislocative nationalism when they want to shore up their patriotic credentials. Ahmadinejad was particularly good at that. I think there is an awareness that these ideas are popular, and at the same time, I think the Islamic Republic has largely failed to replace dislocative nationalism with a completely different nationalism. If you look at textbooks, and Chagai Ram has done some very interesting work on textbooks before and after 79, it's more or less the same nationalism with schism grafted uh, on, on top. So the idea of Aryan race and Semitic race is still there, some extent. And it's very interesting. And this is what makes me believe that dislocative nationalism is the dominant identity, the dominant form of identity in modern Iran. You find elements of it on the other extreme of the political spectrum. So, for instance, Ali Shariati used to claim that Islam is the religion of Semites, and we are Aryans. But in order to adopt Islam, we sort of like adopted it to ourselves, and the result is Shiite Islam. So Shiite Islam is an Aryanized version of Islam. This is the main ideologue of the 1979 revolution, and in fact the ideas, uh, uh, this idea of Shiite Islam being Aryan goes back to Arthur de Gobineau again. So he was the first to come up with this uh, idea. To conclude, I want to share with you images of a rather curious ritual that we've seen developed in the past few years. So you have uh, a number of individuals who go every year on Cyrus Day to Pasargad, to where uh, the tomb of Cyrus the Great is uh, located, and uh, bow down in reverence to Cyrus the Great. And again, if you are considering a PhD, it would be very interesting to uh, study why they bow down 
in this way? Are they subverting the Islamic prayer? Or is it unconscious? Or what is it? I think it's very interesting. Thank you very much.